The gods of death have a major public image problem. It seems like every time we talk about a death deity, a chthonic character, an underworld overlord, I've got to do damage control thanks to Hollywood's insistence on portraying these figures as evil incarnate. You've got Hell murdering thousands of people and conquering Asgard and Thor Ragnarok, Hades plotting against Olympus in every movie he's ever been in, and then there's Anubis. His associations with death combined with his animalistic appearance has led to films like The Mummy Returns and The Pyramid portraying him as a violent, power-hungry villain when in reality, he is the god of minding his own business. It is true that according to Egyptian mythology, Anubis is one of the first figures we meet after we die, but that doesn't make him evil by default. If anything, we should really appreciate Anubis because he looked out for us. If it weren't for him, we'd have to find our own way to the underworld, our graves would be left unprotected against scavengers, thieves, and the elements, and we'd have to weigh our own hearts against the feather of truth which is just gross. The ancient Egyptians considered Anubis an S-tier deity. He was as important as it gets because everyone knew they'd be standing face to face with him eventually. That's why today we're diving deep into Anubis's mythology, the unique way he was worshiped, his specific responsibilities as a psychopomp, and how his role evolved through the dynasties. And now, You've got to stop interrupting me, man. So we've already established that Anubis is the jackal-headed god of funerary rites, the protector of graves, and the guide to the underworld. But in order to fully grasp why he's one of the most respected deities in the ancient Egyptian pantheon, one has to understand that society's views about death and the afterlife. Because according to ancient Egyptian belief, death was not the end of your journey. Your soul and consciousness could continue on their merry way. The catch, though, was that in order to actually enjoy the continuation, there were a number of rituals that had to be conducted in the land of the living and tests you had to pass in the underworld. It was Anubis who presided over these various rituals and processes, starting with the preservation of the body. The Egyptians believed that your body went with you to the duad, what they called the underworld. This is why funeral rituals were so important. Having your body preserved through mummification meant that you wouldn't be doomed to shamble around the blissful fields of reeds as a decaying corpse. The story behind Anubis, or Anpu as the Egyptians called him, being viewed as the almighty embalmer comes from the Osiris resurrection myth. For those who need a refresher, Osiris was the original god-king of Egypt who was betrayed and murdered by his brother Set the god of chaos and destruction. Set chopped Osiris's body into little pieces that his wife Isis had to search for all across Egypt. And even with the help of all the king's horses and all the king's men, she couldn't put his body together again. That's where Anubis comes in. When Ra, the supreme sky god, heard Isis's cries of pain and sorrow, he created Anubis and sent him down from the heavens for the sole purpose of preserving Osiris's body. So the young god aided Isis in sewing the dead king back together and dressing him in the first ever mummification bandages. Now, full disclosure, there is another version of the story where Anubis is not the spawn of Ra, but actually the bastard son of Osiris and the goddess Nephthys. In that version, Nephthys feared that her tyrannical husband Set would discover her infidelity, so she abandoned Anubis in a bush only for him to be found and adopted by her sister Isis. So in that account, Anubis wasn't created solely for this purpose, but it still went on to become his purpose. I'm assuming because reassembling your father's corpse and preparing it for burial creates quite the core memory. To put it another way, once that first mummy was made, it was a wrap.
Anubis' domain and the standard for funerary practices had been established. But remember, there was more to it than just properly burying bodies. A myth found in the Jumalak Papyrus, apologies for the mispronunciation, explains why Anubis was the protector of graves and why the priests who attended the dead wore Anubis masks and leopard skins. It turns out that after Osiris' body had been stitched together, Set was still determined to destroy it. So he took the form of a leopard and tried ripping it to shreds, but Anubis stood his ground against the god of chaos. He picked up a scorching hot iron rod and he beat Set into submission. Then he flayed off his leopard skin, which was now covered in black spots thanks to the iron rod burning his fur, and fashioned it into a garment he would wear as a warning against evildoers who would dare desecrate the tombs of the deceased. There is something kind of ironic about Anubis protecting the graves though, and it's not something I've heard talked about very much. Ya boy has the head of a jackal, right? And jackals are scavengers, meaning they survive by eating corpses, basically the opposite of protecting them. Surely the Egyptians were aware of this, especially when you consider the burial process prior to the first Egyptian kingdom was far more simple, with bodies being buried in shallow graves that gave the jackals easy access. So why was this animal chosen as the sacred grave guardian? Unfortunately, we can only speculate, but Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson suggests it was a fight fire with fire situation. A common theme in Egyptian magic and theology was fighting like with like. And so an animal that embodied a particular undesirable characteristic or whose behavior adversely affected humans was chosen as the image of the deity to guard against such eventualities. When you think about it, it's not that different than Toerit, the goddess and guardian of families, children, and childbirth embodying a hippo. In reality, hippos were major threats to humans and a mama hippo would happily gobble up a mother and her child if it meant protecting her own calf. But this quality was flipped on its head so that humans became the beneficiaries instead of victims. I'll admit it's not a perfect comparison because I doubt the jackals are known for fiercely defending their own dead like mama hippos are with their calves, but maybe I'm taking this all too literally, and the answer actually lies in Anubis's role as the master of the scales. We're about to get metaphorical up in here, my friends, but first I want to thank our sponsor Squarespace for supporting the show. When deceased souls entered the underworld, they used the Book of the Dead to survive the many perils they encountered on their journey. And when entrepreneurs, creatives, or hobbyists want to enter the world of digital marketing, we use Squarespace. From their massive library of award-winning design templates to their intuitive interface that lets you drag and drop boxes as needed, if you're looking to advertise and grow your business or just share your passion with the world, Squarespace has all the answers. Want to start a gallery of your artwork, sell your own merchandise, or start a newsletter to keep your community informed? You can do all of that and more. And because Squarespace knows how important a website is for the success of any business, they give their users access to marketing tools and analytics so we can make sure our website is running efficiently. And they offer personalized customer support 24-7 on the rare occasions it's not. So whether you want to give your business a fresh new online identity or get professional with your passion, you can go to squarespace.com slash johnsolo to start your completely free trial. And when your site is ready for launch, use code johnsolo to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and support the Messed Up Origins podcast. According to ancient Egyptian belief, when someone died, Anubis would appear and guide their soul to the Duat, their name for the underworld. 
but that's just the first step of a process. Because then their soul must survive a long journey with many trials, including passing by a lake of fire inhabited by flesh-eating baboons. And at the end of this perilous adventure is the Hall of Ma'at, which contains the final trial. The deceased person would then confess or deny a list of 42 sins, and if they answered truthfully, the judges allowed them to approach Anubis, who stood in front of the sacred scales, patiently waiting to rip their heart out of their chest. In Egyptian mythology, the heart was where the human soul resided, and having it ripped out actually wasn't a painful process, but it was a suspenseful one, because Anubis would weigh the heart against the feather of Ma'at, the feather of truth, and the result of the scales determine the fate of your soul. If you had lived an unbalanced life, one that was more bad than good, more selfish than selfless, your heart would weigh more than the feather of truth, and Anubis would hand it over to Amit, the lion-maned crocopotamus who devours the souls of the unworthy and obliterates their consciousness from existence. However, if you had lived a good, honest life, and to be clear, you didn't have to be perfect, you just had to honestly try your best to be a decent person, then your soul would weigh lighter than a feather. Anubis would lead you to Osiris, the lord of the underworld, and his highness would guide you to the eternally blissful field of reeds. And I should give credit where it's due, American Gods, the show based off the Neil Gaiman IP, did a great portrayal of Anubis in season one. In the third episode, there's a scene where he kindly and gently informs a woman that she's died and he's there to take her to the next realm. Then we see a stripped down version of the judgment process where he takes her to the duat, weighs her heart, which turns out to be perfectly balanced, and then sends her on her merry way. That is the happy ending that all Egyptians were hoping for in those days, and they did everything possible to put the odds in their favor. Things like burying people with a copy of the Book of the Dead, which was essentially a strategy guide on how to get through the duat safely, carving magic incantations onto coffins to protect the bodies inside, and of course the mummification process to preserve the body for as long as possible. But that brings us back to the earlier question, if preserving the body was the highest priority, why would the Guardian of Graves be a scavenger that is known for snacking on and mutilating bodies? Well, think about it this way. Chances are a selfish person who couldn't be trusted and never did a nice thing for anyone in his life wouldn't have anyone to make sure that his body was cared for after he died. His bod would be dumped in a shallow grave that scavengers could easily dig into, meaning he'd be left to the jackals. If they decided to eat him, they would. If not, he'd be completely rotten away before long. In other words, the jackals determine the fate of your physical body, while the jackal god determined the fate of your soul, which was also more likely to be devoured if you were a selfish person. I do think it's kind of ironic that Anubis feeds the heart to Amit instead of eating it himself, but maybe he used to and just doesn't have the taste for it anymore. It's just a theory of mine, but Anubis has been around since the first dynasty of ancient Egypt. In fact, he was considered the lord of the underworld before the cult of Osiris came along about a thousand years later in the New Kingdom era and demoted him in favor of Osiris. With that in mind, Amit the Devourer wasn't introduced until around that same time. So how did Anubis discard the unworthy souls before that? My guess is, he ate them. Full disclosure, I'd have to do more research before betting any schmeckles on that theory, but I think it's a fun idea. And if you have any thoughts to add, either for or against it, comment them below. So at this point, you're probably thinking, all right, John, I understand that Anubis was a major death deity and that came with a lot of responsibility. 
but if he's really that important, you should probably tell me how to get on his good side. Yep, that's definitely what you were thinking, wasn't it? 100% accurate, spot on completely. On the nose, bullseye. Bingo. Bada boom. As I alluded to earlier, Anubis's connection with so many aspects of the afterlife meant that he was heavily worshipped throughout all of Egypt, with his main center of worship being the city of Kynopolis, which means city of dogs in Greek. But you're not gonna like how they honored him. They sacrificed dogs. I guess this is it for us, buddy. Archaeologists have found, no exaggeration, millions of mummified dog remains in tombs throughout Egypt. In fact, it's believed there was an entire industry built around farming and killing dogs just for this purpose. The city of Saqqara is where some of the most important royal burials, religious sites, and funerary monuments were located. And it also happens to be where the dog catacombs were discovered, containing the remains of roughly 8 million dogs. These dogs are believed to have been votive offerings, which are gifts to deities. Worshippers of Anubis gave him mummified dogs, jackals, and foxes, in exchange for favors, like the protection of a deceased relative, and would even sometimes bury the dogs in the same grave as their relative. You couldn't get these votives just anywhere, though. The priesthood of Anubis oversaw the selling and distribution of the mummified dogs. And because death was so universal, all kinds of people would sacrifice these votives all the time, to the point where the priesthood would regularly clear the offerings away from the main hub and bury them in nearby sacred grounds hence the dog catacombs. So I guess the silver lining here is that the citizens of ancient Egypt didn't have to do the dog murdering themselves to get on Anubis's good side. But the bad news is you're gonna have to because no one sells dog mummies anymore. All right, Penny, I guess you're next. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now you would think that a god worth 8 million dog sacrifices would be featured in some pretty badass myths, right? Well, he's not. To be fair, there aren't a lot of surviving Egyptian myths in the first place, so I'm assuming that some stories have just been lost to the sands of time, but the previously mentioned stories where he reassembles Osiris and then defends him are all that's been uncovered so far. There are some variants of his lineage that I haven't mentioned yet, like in some regions of Egypt, he's the son of Bastet, the cat goddess, and in others, he was the son of Set and Nephthys. Also, his brother was the god of war, Wepwawet, who donned a wolf's head, but none of these fun facts are attached to a story. That's why I called Anubis the god of minding his own business. He didn't get involved in major disputes unless it was absolutely necessary, and most of the time, it wasn't. Like other death deities we've discussed, Anubis spent most of his time doing his job, looking after the endless list of clients he was to escort, judge, and protect. I don't know about you guys, but for me, every time we come across a deity who stays out of the drama, it's like a breath of fresh air. They're few and far between, but if you want to learn about some others, check out my episode on Thoth, the Egyptian god of wisdom, and Hestia, the Greek goddess of the hearth. If you don't want to learn more, then I at least ask that you sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to the gods because those go a long way in supporting the show. And well, you made it to this point in the episode, so you had to like it at least a little bit, unless you're a masochist. I'll see you all again next Thursday when I dive into the messed up mythology of a certain lesser known Egyptian deity. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first. Thank you.